Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. In this episode, we're joined by Paul Gascoigne. Paul is the Senior Recruitment Manager for Sherman and Sterling's London office, which basically means I recruit the lawyers, so the trainees and the qualified lawyers as well. And I've been at Sherman for coming up to nine years now. We wanted to ask you a bit about the transparent approach that you and Sherman take to recruitment, but specifically graduate recruitment. So you've got a great LinkedIn profile, which we'll include in the description. You do things such as Whiteboard Wednesdays, where you'll go through successful applications or give top tips, answer questions. Could you tell us a little bit about this approach and what made you take this approach? Yeah, so, I mean, when I joined Sherman, I'd been working at BPP Law School. And obviously, lots of people there were applying for training contracts. And, you know, I kind of knew in my mind how hard it was. And then when I joined Sherman, I was able to see from the other side. So I was able to kind of assess candidates. And one of the things I realized is that candidates just didn't really know what to expect. Like the interview questions, the, the what you need to include in your application form, how competitive it is. And I've always been very transparent in terms of providing information. So I, I don't really see any point of kind of you know, concealing information or making it harder for candidates. I think it's better to to tell candidates what you're looking for. And then it doesn't make it easier. It just allows candidates to really focus on the things that matter. Because what you don't want is to assess a candidate and they're really good, but you just don't see it because they've been preparing for something that's been completely irrelevant. So I, I generally find that more information you give people, the, the better it is. I mean, I often find that, I mean, when people are on social media and things like that, it's the information is always one way. It's not really a dialogue. It's a case of these are our applications, you know, these are our dates. And even things like, you know, this is how many offices we have, you know, this, that kind of stuff is it's kind of okay, but any candidate can just look on a website and get that information. And I think ultimately what I realized is I could be useful to candidates, like really useful. Um, so I started to to create information content, as we call it, for example, on on applications. And not just, here are three tips, here are five tips, really writing in-depth 
articles which really scrutinize the, the process and really explain what we're looking for and explain how competitive it is. So it was a case of providing information, but then going kind of above what was out in the market already and really kind of going into depth and really explaining it and really making it useful. And the other thing as well is it was a change in, in approach. So, you know, when I joined, we were still doing lots of things like attending law firms. So we would be traipsing up and down the country like for, for weeks and weeks, attending law firms, and you'd be there for hours answering really basic questions. And actually for a team our size, I thought it was probably a you know, waste, of, waste of energy, really. And I thought, actually, we created things that were readily available online, which were really useful. Candidates will get so much more value from that than coming to speak to us at a law firm asking who we were and like where our, our office was based, those types of basic questions. So that was really the, the premise behind it. I thought providing information is good, making in-depth, and also changing the way that we were kind of promoting ourselves to students. And I think providing information online has proven to be much more effective than you know attending lots of different law firms up and down the country. Yeah, complete. I think it's also nice because as well as doing that, I mean, in my experience of coming to one of the open days that you were running, you know, that was an in-person extension of the content yeah. that's there online. So it's, it was, it was a really good experience. I think that's right. It's, you know, when you do things online, it doesn't mean that you don't do things in person. It's just that we prioritize things like open days, you know, rather than things like law first. And ultimately it's a case of, you know, managing the resources that you have. So, I mean, I work at a relatively small US law firm. You know, we don't have a lot of resource. So actually, you just have to think, well, it's not like we've got a team of five. We don't have an enormous budget. So how do we do things, you know, a little bit more effectively? Yeah, completely. And it's also nice because the information is, it doesn't try and um, make things overcomplicated at all. It's really, you know, the simplest it can be. And that's so helpful, especially non-law, law, whatever stage you'll be the information about practice is completely different to studying. So that's one of the things I also really like about all your content mm. because this kind of links to the next question, which Ellie is going to ask you, but um, there's so much information out there that it can be hard to know what information to look at. So, yeah. Yeah, very true. I think also with online, you can kind of look in so many different areas and with our podcast, uh, a lot of our listeners are either kind of just coming to the stage of vacation schemes or a little bit before that. And obviously there's a lot of discourse about how kind of overwhelming they can be with applications. So do you have any advice for our listeners who don't know where to start? Yes. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of information out there. And I think there are student publications, things like Legal Cheat. And I think they're a good, good starting point. You'll get used to kind of names and kind of the types of law firms and they'll begin to categorize like, US law firms, Magic Circle law firms, Silver Circle law firms, great place to start. But that's probably that's probably just the beginning. I think once you've started to get familiar with student publications, then maybe move on to the publications which are really designed for lawyers. Now, initially, this might be, you know, quite difficult to understand if you're reading the lawyer. But ultimately, you'll begin to see how kind of lawyers and you know, like legal journalists are reporting on the legal sector, which I think is a bit more accurate. So. For students, I would say, you know, start to read student publications, then read legal publications, and then start to, if you can, get some kind of engagement with the law firms that you think you might be interested in. Obviously, an open day is the key thing, I would say, because um, if you go to an open day, then people will tell you a lot more about the firm. 
if you don't really have that benefit, then I'd say try and at least understand the core practice areas of a law firm. Because again, from the outside, law firms can look very similar. And in some ways they are. You know, law firms have many more similarities and they have differences, but they tend to specialize in areas of law. So they might specialize in transactional work, such as M&A or finance, and others might specialize in things like arbitration or litigation, or some firms might do all of it, might have a very broad mix. But I think trying to understand what a law firm specializes in is a, is a good place to start. So for example, at Sherman, we, we're a transactional law firm. We specialize in things like finance and M&A. And if candidates know that, then their application and their interview is going to resonate more than if, if they think we specialize in something like tax, um, which we, we do have a tax department, but it's not a big department within, for example, the London office. So really trying to understand that, uh, what a law firm specializes in, I think is important. Thank you. And yeah, I think we've heard quite a lot of this, that your application, you need to be very careful that it's specific to where you're applying and yeah. actually done that research because it's it seems such an obvious thing to kind of have a downfall on, but I imagine it's quite easy when you're doing multiple applications. Yeah, that's right. And I think obviously there's, there's, it's very difficult to get a training contract and people submit lots of applications. And actually you probably do need to submit lots of applications, but you can't submit the same application to different law firms. And that's you know, that's the challenge, but that's where it's, it's not something you can kind of sit down and within a week produce 20 good applications. I think it takes much longer to kind of research the profession. But once you understand you know, where law firms sit within the market, what they specialize in, what they're good at, then I think it's easier to tailor your applications. So before you even start to think about applications, I think there just needs to be a big, you know, the research period. Thank you. And you touched on there the different types of firms we're looking at. So US firms, Magic Circle, Silver Circle, to name a few. But just honing in on that US firm firms versus UK firms, what actually is the difference between those two? Well, this is tricky. This is tricky. So we do tend to categorize law firms. And I think it's, it's something that we, we always do. We always categorize. So you've got like in, in the student market, law firms are often categorized as U.S. law firms, which is essentially law firms out of their heritage in the U.S. Then you've got magic circle law firms, which are deemed as being like the biggest or the most prestigious of the U.K. law firms. Silver circle, which, you know, some would say is like a, a, a tear down. In practice, these, these categories don't really help you submit training contract applications, though. Ultimately, there are U.S. law firms that have more differences with each other than they do with the commonalities with, with UK law firms. So I think rather than think about it in terms of US and, and UK, it's really understanding individual law firms. But what you would generally find, and these are big generalizations, but if we are going to look at US firms, you'll generally find that they're a bit smaller, certainly in London. And if you're applying for a training contract, your focus should really be on the London office. They tend to be a little bit smaller because they don't really have the same breadth of practice areas. So they tend to specialize in what we call transactional work. So that would be something like M&A, restructuring, private equity, uh, bank finance. So US law firms tend to specialize in transactional work, not exclusively, but generally they tend to, that's where the, the, the specialization is. If you look at law firms globally, you'll find that US law firms are a much bigger footprint in, in the US, New York generally, by footprint, I mean office. So we tend to do more work in New York and then they'll have offices in Europe, the Middle East and the Far East. You'll find that UK law firms don't have the same footprint in New York. They're obviously enormous in, 
in London, and then much bigger usually in Europe, the Middle East, and the Far East. But again, in terms of what you want from your training contract and what you want from your career, you, you know, it's important to to make that distinction because a law firm has an office in a uh, has an office in a certain country it doesn't necessarily mean you can go and work there. So, for example, at Sherman, people always think that they could just move to the New York office. And it's not really that straightforward because if you do a training contract in London, you tend to be England and Wales qualified. That's the jurisdiction that you kind of practice. So it's again, it's quite it's quite nuanced. And again, this is why it's it's important to do quite a lot of lot of research. But yeah, I mean, I'd say stay away from thinking that all US law firms are the same versus all magic circle firms are the same. If you even look at the magic circle firms, there's a massive difference between a firm like Slaughter and May and Link Lightish, for example. Thank you. That was really helpful. And this is, I remember on the open day, this was one of the main topics of discussion was talking about US firms, not necessarily in comparison to UK firms, but just actually understanding that because it is, I think, very common when you're at the start, that split, which is a great starting point, but it doesn't, it almost doesn't help you understand what a firm like Sherman does just saying, oh, it's a US firm, it doesn't give you much context in the work, into the work. So yeah, I remember you did a really good piece on Sherman's approach, but also not specific to Sherman, just going into yeah. that. So just, just another quick, just another quick point on this. Well, before I forget, Katie, again, lots of candidates will also think about, you know, who's a firm's com- uh, competition. So again, a mistake that a candidate might make is thinking that they're applying to a US law firm, therefore, or the US law firms are the natural competitors. But law firms are really made up of different practice areas. They kind of all combine together under, you know, the, the the umbrella firm. But you'll often find that a firm might have a certain set of kind of core competitors for its M&A practice. And that set of competitors will be different from its, for example, project finance competitors. And its competitors in litigation might be different and the antitrust might be different. So again, thinking about things at a very top level isn't really how law firms work. And I think good candidates will begin to look at a law firm and think, what are the law firm's core practice areas? And then think about who it competes with at the practice group level rather than just at a firm-wide level. I think that's a, you know, that's a good way of doing it. Thank you. We've actually discussed a little bit about, I suppose, the importance of research and then also I suppose another one could be not kind of stereotyping UK and US firms, but is it possible to kind of um, identify like a most common mistake that prevents applicants getting through to the next stage? Yeah, I mean, people don't believe me when I say it, and I think people are tired of me saying it, but most people get rejected because they've made a mistake on the application form. You know, people get obsessed with, is it my academics? Is it because I've not done a master's? So, you know, all these really high level things. And ultimately they've spelled the, the name of the firm wrong, or, you know, they've got a, possessive apostrophe wrong or something like that. And it can sometimes appear very pedantic. But, you know, one of the things that lawyers and particularly trainees need to have is this real attention to detail. You know, we call it meticulousness when we go through the recruitment process because, you know, in in practice, the trainees are often tasked with making sure that documents are correct. It's not the partner's job to do that. It's usually the trainee's job to do that. So one of the things that we ask on the application form is that it comes to us without any mistakes in it. So I think in the last application round, it was over 70% of candidates had made a mistake, which got them got them rejected. So once people submit really good applications, then it's really a case of looking at the open text questions, so the research that they've done on the firm. So we've got three questions, and law firms have different questions, but they're always, they're never really that much different. 
So ours is all around Sherman's competitive advantage for the first question. So candidates really need to do their research on the firm. The second question is around their motivation for being commercial lawyers and why an application to Sherman. And then the third one is all around kind of extracurriculars. So once you've kind of well, eliminated people who've made mistakes, you then start to look at the quality of the answers. Very few people get rejected based on academics. I think that's the, the, the biggest misconception. Because obviously there are minimum criteria and most people will know the minimum criteria before they apply. So most people will meet the minimum criteria and then you're reviewing the application form. Thank you. That's, I mean, it's really interesting to hear. I'm still at law school, so slightly further back from Katie. And I mean, I completely agree. Academics is what people seem to constantly talk about. They go, well, I can't get this because I haven't got this. And it's so interesting that the majority is kind of, I suppose, those small mistakes that people assume that they never make, but clearly most yeah. people do. Yeah, that's right. And people get fixated on single things, like they got a, a relatively low module mark and they think that's the thing that's holding them back. And then you read the application form, it's, you know, it's just some glaring, obvious error. And that's, that's, that's the real reason. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think it's nice to hear your explanation there behind it as well, because at face value, it might seem like you say a bit pedantic or you've, you haven't put the and sign in Sherman and Sterling, you've written and or something like that. And you think, oh, that's a bit harsh. But actually, when you look at the tasks that for the role that you're applying for, attention to detail is one of the biggest things so I think it's it's quite nicer to hear your reasoning behind it because hopefully then that will make sense to people when when they're writing their applications Um, And and this kind of links back to you know the initial question around creating information so so many candidates won't understand the importance of getting like the 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 details absolutely 100% correct so the more I tell people this whether they kind of like it or not, or kind of agree with it or not, you know, I think it's important to be really upfront. So the people who really take it seriously, absolutely scrutinize their application, make sure it's error free and therefore are then being, you know, considered for for an interview and then a vacation scheme. Thank you. Yeah. 
Okay, so we want to talk to you a little bit about the new SQE. Could you just explain what it is in the context of the change? So, I mean, the SQE is essentially the new way that people will qualify as solicitors in England and Wales. So previously people would do essentially a law degree or equivalent, which would be the GDL. Then they'd do the LPC and then they'd do a training contract. What's happening now is candidates will do a degree in any subject, but then they'll do an SQE one. So solicitors qualifying exam one, solicitors qualifying exam two, and then they'll do two years work experience, which can be made up of four separate bits of work experience in different firms. And then that will allow them to be, to be qualified. So essentially what's happening is there's now an external benchmark. If you think about it before with the old system, people would do a lot, let's say a law degree, pass that. They would then go to law school and do the LPC. And then they would ideally do a training contract within a law firm. And then the training contract will be signed off at the end of it. And then with a kind of suitability test as well, they would be admitted. One of, one of the things that we found though, one of the things I never liked about that system is it was dependent on people getting the training contracts. Now, if you think about who offers training contracts, it's people like me within a law firm. Now, my job, as I see, is to decide who joins Sherman as a trainee. My job is not to decide who becomes a solicitor. And ultimately, in the old system, that was essentially my, my, my job. It's not something that you know, any recruiter has ever asked for, but just the way that it would work. Because anyone can, if you do a degree, then kind of edit, if you start one, then most people finish it. The LPC, most people passed it. And then the training contract, if you got a training contract, most people would be signed off at the end of it. So then the barrier to entry to the profession was really getting a training contract. And I'm not really, I'm not sure that is where the barrier to entry should be. Now what has happened is it's been replaced by a, an external exam. So people can essentially qualify independently from someone making a decision about them doing a training contract. So they could self-fund SQE1, put themselves through SQE2, so get the examinations. And then the, the work experience could be kind of four bouts of six months paralegaling or a year paralegaling, six months at another, fir another firm, six months at another firm, and that would create the two-year work experience. And then they would be able to qualify. So... It's tricky because we're still in the, the early stages. And I think lots of law firms, particularly commercial law firms, are still have got a bit of a hybrid model where they'll be putting people onto the SQE, but essentially structuring it very much like the LPC. We will all be front-loaded. So people will spend a year at law school doing the SQE rather than the LPC, and then they'll still join and do two years' work experience. But that is only commercial law firms. It gives a lot more flexibility to firms that don't want to follow that model. Um, for people who don't necessarily want to be, want to do a training contract, so I think generally, I think once it's settled down and we're onto a few years in, I think it will be a positive thing because I'm not quite sure the the old system was, was 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 really that good. I think people were comfortable with it, which is why people didn't necessarily like the SQE because it was change. But I don't think the old model was 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 that good, really. Yeah, I mean. Anytime there's change, it's going to be a strange phase. And I think what you've said there about, you know, talking about your role, how it's impacted effectively the decision you make, even though in practice your role stayed the same, is is really nice because it does show how 
important it is that you know the SQE has been implemented so bit scary for me who's currently sitting yeah, yeah. it but yeah I mean I, I think, think it it's interesting I think what we'll find is if, it, if any of the initial indications are to to hold true it, it might be a difficult exam to pass certainly SQE one well because it's difficult doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong if you think about entry to the profession we kind of want you you think you'd want the barriers to be fairly high you know solicitors are involved in like people's liberty you know dealing with kind of you know family issues even commercial lawyers are dealing with you know really big issues that can affect people's livelihoods so i do think you know the high barrier to entry is no bad thing thank you thank you now to sort of focus on a slightly different area you're talking about the commercial firms so what does commercial awareness actually mean so I'm interviewed mean, to really, really boil it down. It's just to understand what a client might want. So when people are going for a training contract, they're very much thinking about themselves working at the firm, working with other lawyers, you know, thinking about the type of practice group that they're, they're interested in, the type of law that they enjoy, maybe at university or at law school, and thinking that that will be your career. But ultimately, clients will come to you with problems. And ultimately, it's about thinking through the best options for the clients. That's really what it's all about. You know, when people say commercial awareness, they just want to make sure that if a client comes to you, you're able to evaluate all the different options in, in the, the industry that they, they operate. So another thing that candidates can do when they're looking at law firms is look at the clients and then think about like, the key industries that, that the clients are in. So law firms will have particular practice groups, but they'll also specialize in certain industries. So that might be kind of telecommunications or it might be financial services or kind of chemicals. And ultimately, ultimately, the lawyers will almost become experts within that industry as well. So you might be an M&A lawyer, but you specialize in like telecommunications. So yes, you know about M&A, but within the telecommunications industry. And that's where people really, really begin to specialize. Thank you. Yeah, because it's a term that comes up a lot. And I think it can be built up to be this mysterious thing that no one can actually have. And I think there's a, I mean, there's a level of that in terms of, you're not going to have that awareness of what a client wants until you're with the client and you're in practice. But I think it's it's nice to remind yourself of what that means because, you know, people say read the news, read industry updates. Of course, that's part of it, but it's not knowing every single detail about everything happening that's in the right. world. Yeah. It's just having that broad awareness of what's going on and how that might impact a client you'd be working with. So... Thank you I think, for that. And I think, you know, for, for candidates, you know, in terms of what they can read, but, you know, people say read the FT, you know, it can be daunting, but I mean, ultimately, you know, people are joining this profession, people will be able to read the FT. It might be a bit confusing to start with and, you know, might be a bit of a difficult read, but the more people do it, the easier it will become. So just reading things out of the FT and the Economist, you, you'll just be able to understand things in, you'll be able to understand things more after reading it for a few months. So even though it might be challenging to start with, I mean, those publications are generally what lawyers read. No, I think that's a, a, a good thing to say because I know for sure when I first started trying to engage with things like that, I did find terms really confusing. But actually over time and listening to it in different formats, so maybe you listen to a, the podcast version of the updates or things like that, you can find a way where things make sense it doesn't have to be sat down with a physical print studying it it can just be checking in with it 
every day ideally or once a week whatever it is so yeah, yeah exactly. no it's very true okay so to finish up this episode we asked some of our listeners to share any questions they had for you and we've kind of got three main ones um because we grouped some of the questions that we got together so the first question if I haven't attended an open day, is my vacation scheme application going to be at a disadvantage? No, I kind of advise people to do an open day because you got you get a lot of information on the firm. But it's not the case of you came to an open day, therefore you're prioritized for a vacation scheme. You'll benefit from the information that you get. But other than that, no. Then lots of trainees currently didn't attend an open day. Thank you. And then so the next question from listeners. So how many non-law versus lost? versus law students you shall recruit and what advice do you have for non-law graduates so it's not something that we kind of monitor usually it's around in terms of applications because we get a lot of applications usually it's it's a bit easier to to kind of plot that year on year and it's usually around 60 percent law grads 40 percent non-law grads <clears throat> but when it comes to actual trainees it can vary quite a lot so let's say we have intake 12 12 trainees per year some years it might be 10 law students, sometimes it, 10 law students, two non-law students. Other times, you know, the, the balance can shift the other way. I mean, ultimately, we're just not assessing people on their law degree when they go through the recruitment process. So it just, it just varies so much. If you looked at it over time, over like a, a period of 10 years, it probably would be around 50-50, but it can just fluctuate so wildly from, from year to year. It's not something that we really kind of look at. And, you know, and if you are a non-law student, I think the key thing to understand is that law firms are not set assessing people on their legal knowledge when it comes to vacation schemes or training contracts. The reality is a law degree is just an academic subject, just like anything else. Um, there'll be some elements which will be relevant, but generally it's an academic subject. And what you do in practice is the practice of law. And the two things are very different. So a, a non-law student has got as good a chance of getting a training contract as a law student. Perfect. Thank you. And the final question from our listeners, do I need a first and will I be at a disadvantage if I have a 2-1? Well, no and no. So you don't need a first. I mean, a first is fantastic, but it's not a requisite. Will it be a dis disadvantage with a 2-1? No, absolutely not. The minimum criteria is a 2-1. So if you meet the criteria, then your application gets evaluated. But no, I think we're now at a stage where people just think getting a 2-1 is a negative thing. It isn't. But, you know, most candidates applying will have a 2-1. So, no, don't, don't overthink that. Don't not apply because you don't have a 2-1. I think just these questions really come back to the fact that what we were talking about earlier, you know, the minimum criteria is there to help you with these questions. And then you've really touched on well earlier about what you're actually looking for in those applications. Hmm. So it's kind of nice to see how those more detailed questions that people are thinking about and worried about really aren't the focus at all of what you're looking for as a recruiter. So I think that's right. Thank and, you so much. And I completely appreciate it. Candidates think it's very difficult because you don't really get feedback from the application stage. You know, law firms get so many applications, so we can get up to 2,000 applications. But for candidates, it's then a bit of the unknown. I think people tend to kind of get fixated on something and think that that's the reason that they've been 
rejected when in, in many ways it isn't. But things like academics, as long as you meet the minimum criteria, it's unlikely to be academics. It's more likely to be something a, a bit more fundamental. But obviously candidates need to know that it's a very competitive market out there. And getting rejected is, you know, is a common thing. Most people will get rejected. Again, I think because it's, it's the first time that people really have applied for, to proper jobs. It's really the first time people have, have faced a rejection. And it can be very personal and, you know, it's, it can be quite difficult to understand what that means. But if you're applying to be a commercial lawyer in London, you know, it's such a sought after profession. It, you know, if you, you have to understand that hundreds and thousands of people want to have this career. So there are, it's going to be stiff competition. It doesn't mean that you can't make it. It just means that it's competitive and you need to, you know, tick a lot of the boxes that law firms are looking for. So work experience, academics, good research, answers that are well written, no mistakes. You know, all of those things need to be in place. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was incredibly insightful. No problem at all. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on Law Talks. Genuinely been so helpful. And I think this will be a great episode that we've been wanting to do for a long time. So we appreciate it a lot. So most of my information goes out on LinkedIn. So if anyone is interested in more information, you know, feel free to follow me on there. And that's essentially where I'll try and be as <laughs> informative as I can. Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.